Now, their sister property that's a mile away is called the Inn at Death Valley. And this is the fancy. That's the pool. This is the fancy schmancy hotel. It's a triple A rated four diamond resort. It is really something. We have only looked over the fence at this <laughs> because we're not because we're I, not allowed. We we have gone up there to to the bar to have a like a prickly pear margarita mm-hmm. or something like that. But no, they they sniff us out pretty quick. <laughs> so, folks, isn't isn't it about time for you to go back to the pond? That's right. <laughs> This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, our stories of adventures and misadventures as we travel to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Karen Smith. And I'm Matt Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Today we're talking about one of our favorite parks to visit in the winter, Death Valley National Park in California. Now, Death Valley may be the hottest, driest, and lowest national park, but it also has mountains and sand dunes and craters and slot canyons. There is a lot of adventure to be found here. That's for sure. We'll share some of our favorite hikes, viewpoints, and scenic drives, and we'll also discuss our trek out to see the mysterious moving rocks at a place called the Racetrack. But first, to kick things off, we discuss some exciting National Park news. And at the end of the episode in our mailbag segment, we'll answer a question related to rattlesnakes. Your favorite topic, Matt. Ooh. (laughs) Before we start rambling on about something that nobody cares about, I have an important park news announcement that I think is quite exciting. (laughs) What is it, Karen? (laughs) Currently, there are 62 parks in the national park system that are designated national parks, and there is about to be a 63rd. We need like a a drum roll. (laughs) Maybe we can put one in right there. (laughs) Number 63. So that means we got to go on another trip. That's right. Thanks to a provision in the latest economic stimulus package, the New River Gorge National River will soon become New River Gorge National Park. So we're going to West Virginia. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kind of embarrassed to say I'd never heard of New River Gorge National River. Had you? I have heard of it before. Yeah, I guess that I guess it's a good place to raft. Yes, I looked it up because I wondered what we would do when we got there. And it says that there is 53 miles of free-flowing whitewater. So I guess whitewater rafting is a big thing to do there. Also, apparently for rock climbers, there are 1,500 possible routes thanks to the gorgeous, gorgeous, not gorgeous, you know, the gorge. Yeah, the gorge. I know. <laughs> are you? I'm just, I'm just staring at you, wait, waiting for you to run out of words. Well, it's going to be a while. <laughs> so they rock climb the gorge, uh, and these cliffs soar over to 1,000 feet in some areas. So I don't think we'll be doing that, but the whitewater rafting sounds fun. Yeah, so I'm look, looking forward to that, if if we could ever travel again. I know, I know. We'll be headed to West Virginia. Well, I think we should give them a little bit of time so that they can get their stamp. 
And the new National Park sign. And that's, the sign, yeah. yeah. That's because so we have to take our photo in front of it. Call us up when you got the sign in the stand. Mm-hmm. Somebody just messaged us that they were just at White Sands National Park, and it's been a national park for over a year now, and they still don't have the National Park sign. See, it's not just – oh. I was going to say they don't have the stamp. It's it's not just me. I'm not the only one who's having trouble getting a stamp. No, but, they have the stamp. Okay. They do have the stamp, she told me, but they don't have the sign. So it might take a while. Print one on the printer. Just put eight and a half by 11. Just, <laughs> Maybe. Just, a, just one no. for national, one for park and tape those up there. It would be funny if we printed our own and held it in front. Let's like, do that. That's similar to Kobuk Valley. Remember Kobuk Valley National Park when we were in Alaska? They gave us they gave us the sign mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. said, here, take this with you in the in the small plane. And so we can get there. You just hold the sign. That's right. Yeah. All right. So we will we will go to West Virginia prepared. Okay. Okay. Great. But also I have some news of my own. You do? Exciting news? It's it (laughs) might be even more exciting than a new national park, although I don't want to insult the people of West Virginia because that's a big deal. But also in the stimulus package, they decriminalized the unauthorized use of the smoky bear image. They did. Yeah. I didn't know it was a criminal offense. I I didn't know that it was either. (laughs) The the other thing is, and and this is maybe equally as as cool, is that they decriminalized the use of Woodsy the Owl. Oh. And and the Woodsy Woodsy doesn't get as much attention as Smokey. Like, I, I don't even understand why... You have to get permission to use the Smoky Bear image or Woodsy for that matter. I don't know why it's illegal in the first place to use the Smoky Bear image or, or the Woodsy the Owl. That's public property. <laughs> we should be able to use it however we want. So now that it's decriminalized, I see the wheels turning in your head and you're going to start that printing shop, aren't you, in our basement and start cranking out those uh, those Smoky <laughs> Bear T-shirts. <laughs> I might. <laughs> I might, I might, I might make some smoky stuff. I'd like some. They're not going to throw. What are they going to do? Throw me in jail? Uh No, (laughs) they're not. (laughs) However, if you were going to alter Smokey's image, I think one thing that would be an improvement is if you put a shirt on him and maybe he wasn't wearing jeans. No, he's an actual bear. He doesn't. (laughs) He doesn't need a shirt. Why is he wearing jeans then? Hey, he's putting out fires. He's, try, he's trying to protect his lower half from, from the fire. I think maybe some work pants or some. I Those don't know. are work pants. He's They're got jeans. them rolled up. He's ready to go. Yeah, that image was from what, the 1950s? Yeah, I don't know. Again, I'm you're sure. asking me questions mm-hmm. that I don't, Look, wasn't prepared to answer. I know people love that image and it's, it's iconic and it's a classic. So I think. Um, I think they should make him a badass because <laughs> people need to be afraid of Smokey. Like th- think that he's going to come and kick your ass if, if you're like doing fireworks in public lands. Or Well, there's your idea for a T-shirt right there. Make him a badass. Respect the hat. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, I'll take that in consideration now that I won't go to jail for – Doing smoky stuff or Woodsy the Owl stuff. That's right. So, so big news to start the new year in the in the national park and national forest. Yeah, national forest. Mm-hmm. Look for those new 
unauthorized t-shirts from us. Coming your way. Yeah. <laughs> Today's podcast episode is about Death Valley National Park. Yeah, maybe it's too late now, but the marketing department could have named this <laughs> park a little bit better. Death Valley. <laughs> you go to Death Valley? Yeah, it's not super welcoming, is it? <laughs> a little bit frightening to go mm-hmm. to a park named Death Valley. That's right. And I had always imagined it in my mind. For some reason, I don't know why this was, but I thought it would be all sand dunes. I thought it would just be sand dune after sand dune. but Like it, the Sahara Desert? Yeah, I guess that, that's what I pictured in my mind. But in reality, the sand dunes in Death Valley only cover about 1% of the park. So it actually has very little sand dunes compared to the rest of the landscape. I thought our car would break down when we went. Why? Because... It was 111 degrees. Oh, <laughs> that <laughs> it, first time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was surprised. I was surprised how many mountains that they had in, in the park. It is such a varied landscape. So before we get into it, we should start at the beginning now. If uh, you haven't been to Death Valley before, it is located in southeastern California with a tiny little piece of it extends into Nevada. Now, the eastern border of Death Valley runs right along Nevada's western border, so they kind of snuggle up right next to each other. It's a big park. It's the largest park in the lower 48. It's huge. Yeah. It's got, what, three and a half million acres? Mm-hmm. That's right. And, and out of those three and a half million acres, 93% of it is designated wilderness. It's also the hottest and driest and lowest national park. <laughs> All three of those. That's right. Hottest, driest, lowest. So there you go. Again, not some, not super welcoming. <laughs> Although I have to, like, spoiler alert, we really like this park. Oh, we love this been, park. We've been there many times and, and plan to go back. Mm-hmm. And it's just such a diverse park. So you have these low, low valley floors, and then you have rugged mountains that rise up as high as 11,000 feet. You have all kinds of deep canyons. Uh, You have the sand dunes that I mentioned, and you have all kinds of spring-fed oases. So, Karen, Mm -hmm. can you tell me when this became a national park? (laughs) I can, Matt. (laughs) Thank you for asking. Death Valley was actually named a national monument in 1933. And the park owes a lot of its early development to the Civilian Conservation Corps, or the CCC, because from 1933 to 1942, they improved the area greatly by creating trails, buildings, and camps. And they also brought in phone and water service to some areas of the valley. So, yes, so it became a national monument in 1933, and it became a national park in 1994. Oh, that's that's pretty recent. I, I didn't realize it was so recent. I think it's becoming more and more popular. I think it is, like too. Like in, in 2019, they had, what, 1.7 million visitors? Yeah, and that was a record. I read that the park's visitation has more than doubled in the last 10 years. So people are finding out about how amazing Death Valley is. Yeah, and I think that whole southwestern part of the United States, from Las Vegas to Los Angeles, there's pretty cool deserts, and and this is one of them. Now, as to why the park is called Death Valley, I talked about this on my History Channel podcast mm-hmm, uh, last week. Uh, yeah, so I, haven't, I haven't watched that one yet. <laughs> I'm just kind of saving those up. So I'll just go over this briefly. It's actually a very long and interesting story, but we don't have time. So I will summarize what happened. And it is that in 
1849 and 1850, a group of pioneers was trying to get to the gold fields of California, and they became lost during the winter in this Death Valley area. Now, two of the young men in their group set off on foot to try to go find supplies and go find help. And they hiked for 300 miles through this harsh landscape. And they returned with supplies. And everyone was saved except for one man who had died during that time. So as this group is now climbing out of the valley over the Panamint Mountains, one of these men turned around, looked back and said, goodbye, Death Valley. And the name stuck. Did he say it like that? <laughs> I don't think he said it in such a happy voice. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I, I'm guessing he said a few other words also. Yes, but this is a, this is a rated PG-13 podcast, so we, we can't get into that. Well, like you said, it's one of the hottest places on earth. So as far as when to go, we, we've been mostly in the winter, January, February, but we went one time in September. Like I said, it was 111 degrees. But the the best times to go are really, what, November to March? Mm-hmm, November through March. And like you said, when we go in January and February, the temperatures, it's lovely. It's around 60, maybe 70 degrees in the daytime. But, yeah, that one time we drove through, and it was September 16th. It was during our very first parks journey. We knew we weren't going to stop and hike because we knew it was going to be brutally hot. So we were just basically driving through, and we stopped at the visitor center, and the thermometer read 111 degrees we might have a picture of the thermometer. i think we do i think yeah. we do we'll put a bunch of pictures about our visits to death valley yeah. on, on our website we've for, been, for this episode yeah we've been like five times so far now usually if we're not driving for us and for most people the most direct way to get to death valley is to fly into las vegas because from there it's only a two-hour drive to the east side of the park But of course, depending on where you're coming from, for instance, the Los Angeles area, if you were driving from there, it's about three and a half hours, and that puts you on the west side of the park. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing place to think that you can land in Las Vegas airport and a two-hour drive, you're in this incredible wilderness. It's a a great place to visit if you're in that area anyway. A lot lot of people have to go to Las Vegas for business reasons or other reasons. It's a great trip to add on to if you're in that area. Absolutely. And you could you could do it as a day trip if that's all you had and you could hit a few of these highlights we're going to talk about. I'd say if you're going on a vacation there, you'd want to spend at least three days, maybe more, you know, to see all the stuff that we're going to talk about. But yeah. And, and one of the reasons for that is, you know, it doesn't look like that big of a park. I mean, when you come into the valley, you think you can well, you can kind of see the whole area. But Driving from one point to the next always seems to take forever. It does. Because it's just a it's just a big area. It's a big wide open space. Yes, Death Valley is long and skinny. It's long and skinny. And the main road that runs through the park is California Highway 190. And that runs east-west through the park for 82 miles. And that's the sort of the main thoroughfare. And along this road are three hubs that provide food, gas, and lodging. And it's the only three places where you can find some food, get some gas. So when you go to Death Valley, you want to make sure that your gas tank is full and you've got extra water in the car and definitely a spare tire. And as far as gas goes, you can start with a full tank of gas, but keep your eye on it. Mm -hmm. Because like we said, driving to and from 
usually is a long drive to, to any anywhere in the park. And so you get you have to keep your eye on your gas levels. There are, a, like you said, there, there are a few hubs. Uh, Furnace Creek is one of the, those hubs, and that's where the visitor center is, and they have gas. Stovepipe Wells is another area, mm-hmm. and Panamint Springs. That's right. Now, before we get into what to do, we'll talk uh, for a minute about where you can stay inside the park as far as lodging goes. The oasis at Death Valley has two lodging properties, and they're each a mile apart, and they both have undergone huge renovations recently. Uh, Now, the place that we've always stayed used to be called Furnace Creek Ranch, and it's now called The Ranch at Death Valley, and we love that place. We love it. It kind of reminds me of of the... Line from Caddyshack, pool or a pond? You know, work at the, 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 the ranch is kind of the pond. <laughs> the other one's the pool. It, it, but that's, that's who we like are. They're not going to like it that you I, said I that. They'll, they'll, they'll not like that. But since, but no, it's, it's great, but it's pool or a pond. So I was afraid when they redid the ranch um, that they were going to take away. We had this little saloon there that we loved, and we'd go in for pizza and for beers. And it was just really authentic cowboy saloon. Now, we haven't been back since they finished the renovations there, but I did look at photos online, and and the saloon is still there. They've upgraded it. It's nicer. It's bigger. It's fancier. But thank goodness it's still there. And they also have they have a lot to do. There's an 18-hole golf course. There's a swimming pool. There's horseback riding. And your favorite, Matt, the Borax Museum. Oh, the Borax <laughs> Museum. I made the mistake on, on our first trip to Death Valley. We went into the Borax Museum. And I. And sometimes, and this will come as a shock, I can make smart-ass comments. <laughs> <laughs> and I said something about Borax. That wasn't complimentary. And the, you said, "Why does anyone in the world need borax or something like well, that?" Well, I don't know what I, what exactly I said, but the woman working there gave me a tongue lashing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so do do not make fun of borax when you're in the no. borax museum. She's very passionate about her borax, and I think that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, that that's great. So yeah, bor go to the borax museum uh-huh. first. Spend mm-hmm. all day there. It could take two full days to go through the <laughs> Borax Museum. Now, their sister property that's a mile away is called the Inn at Death Valley. And this is the that's fancy. The that's the pool. This is the fancy schmancy um, hotel. It's a AAA rated four diamond resort. So, again, I looked at the pictures of the renovation. It is really something um, you can rent a standard hotel room, which isn't standard. I mean, it's it looks pretty amazing. Uh, they also have pool bungalows, and they have these casitas in the back that come with your own golf cart because you can't drive your car back there, so you zoom around on your own personal golf cart. We we have only looked over the fence at this <laughs> because <laughs> we're not because we're I, not allowed. That we're not allowed, we, and I think it's incredibly expensive. We, no, we we have gone up there to to the bar to have a like a prickly. Pair or margarita mm-hmm. or something like that. But no, no, they 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 sniff us out pretty quick. <laughs> so our, folks, isn't, isn't it about time for you to go back to the pond? That's right. <laughs> and speaking of pool, their pool is phenomenal. When you see the photos of it, it, it does look like some very high-end resort, which it is. But I guess the pool is spring-fed and it's 85 degrees year-round. So it's kind of like a pond. It's kind of like a cement pond. <laughs> Right, so we're going back in time. We're, we're all, all all the way back to the Beverly Hillbillies mm-hmm. now. Okay. Right. So those 
those are your two choices in the Furnace Creek area. Well, what about Stovepipe Wells? Isn't (laughs) it? Isn't there a hotel over there? There is a hotel over there, Matt. Uh, Now, the Stovepipe Wells Village Hotel, that's pretty centrally located in the park along that Highway 190. And I couldn't find out a whole lot about that. I think it's pretty basic. It said they had 83 rooms, a pool, a restaurant, and a saloon. And then there's a a third option, the Panamint Springs Resort. It's Mm -hmm. 10 miles inside the western boundary of the park. We've never stayed there either. We haven't. But you know what I saw when I was looking on their website? No. So they say that it's small, rustic, western style. But they also have a saloon. And here's what's interesting. (laughs) And I think we might like it. They serve over 100 different beer styles. And they have 12 beers on tap. That's a lot for a tiny little Hmm. little place. Why haven't we been there? I know. I know. Pizza burgers and 100 types of beer. Mm -hmm. Been holding out on me. (laughs) we got to go back. We do have to go back. We'll be checking out the pan. Springs Resort. Uh, So those are the lodging options inside the park. And uh, do you want to talk about some things to do? No, I I don't. I think I think we've said enough on this on this podcast. Things you want to go have lunch? I know you do. (laughs) No things to do. Things to do. As everyone knows, we love to hike. Uh, There's some great hikes, but there's also some great viewpoints and drives. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dante's view. So Dante's view is is one of the viewpoints. It's uh, about 5,500 feet. It's uh, one of the most breathtaking viewpoints in the park, and it's facing west, so you're getting the view of the Panamint Mountains. That's right. And they, uh, even in the summertime, it seems like there's snow on on those peaks. I know. And those, those, those are beautiful mountains all time of year. And it's one of the best places to see the sunrises in the park. That's right. Now, Dante's view overlooks Badwater Basin, which we will be talking about in a few minutes. And further north, also facing west, is another viewpoint called Zabriskie Point. And this is the probably the most famous viewpoint in the park, especially at sunrise and sunset. But you're still kind of looking in the same direction. You're just further north, and it's overlooking the Badlands and some of those beautiful landscapes. Zabriskie Point. Mm-hmm, Zabriskie yeah. Point is. And now Zabriskie Point has a paved 0.3 mile trail that you can walk along to get to some some different viewpoints. But both of those are very popular, great places to watch sunrise and sunset. Yeah, that Zabriskie Point can get uh, is very popular. It can get crowded. Mm-hmm, it can. And now, as I mentioned, Badwater Basin. I know that's one of your favorite places in the park. Well, yeah, it is. It's the lowest point in the park. It's also the lowest point in North America. If you see these photographs of the classic salt flats, this desert area covered in this in these white salt formations, that's that's Badwater Basin. I know. It's so unique. Now, it sits at 282 feet below sea level, which is really hard to imagine, isn't it? And the salt flats cover nearly 200 square miles. Is that correct? That's is, correct. Is, did, you look, did you look that up? I did. It's hard to believe, isn't that, it? That, 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 that seems, <laughs> you might want to fact check that, me on that. You, you might want to look that up. 200 square miles is a lot. I, I think that's maybe. Maybe it was 200 square acres. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. No, let's just fact, fact check it. Since, um, yeah, since the whole park mm-hmm. is 200 square miles. I don't know. I don't know about that. So anyway, when you go to sea, 
Badwater Basin, there's a boardwalk that takes you to the edge of the basin. And a lot of people stop right there and look out. But if you really want to see them, you can walk out for miles and miles. You can walk out as far as you want to walk out. Um, you just want to be really careful to not step on the crust of these, the salty crust of these Which formations. Which is impossible, right? You, well, no, you step in between. You know, the crust is raised. Oh, okay. And we were there um, Valentine's Day about two years ago looking. I was looking. You weren't looking. I was looking for heart-shaped formations in these salt shapes. And I found a few, although you yeah, were – you I, didn't I, they, think they – They looked like potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> One looked like an avocado. <laughs> I think we would still be there looking for them. I think we would. Yeah, but uh, but it's very cool to check out. And like we said, you can walk you can walk out there and walk for as long as you want to. I love saying the next place on our list here. Ubi hebe. Ubi hebe. Ubi hebe. Ubi hebe. Kraber. Ubi hebe. Kraber. Kraber. We go. All right, cut that out. Okay. Ubi hebe crater. Now it's interesting because. This crater isn't as old as they once thought it might be. Well, <laughs> who's they? <laughs> Somebody scientists. Sci- scientists thought uh-huh. it was. They, they thought uh-huh. it was three hundred billion years old, and and no, it's actually only three hundred years old. It could be. It could be. So what happened is. Molten lava came in contact with groundwater, and then steam pressure built up underground, and then the earth exploded in a massive volcanic belch. Oh, that's gross. (laughs) (laughs) And when the dust settled, there was a half-mile-wide, 600-foot-deep crater left there. Well, the cool thing is you can drive right kind of up to it. There's a parking area, and then you can uh, hike around it. That's right. Um, If you want to hike around the rim, it's about one and a half miles around. Or you can walk down into the crater, the 600 feet. Just remember, you have to then walk back up. Um, There's also a one mile out and back trail that will take you to a smaller adjacent crater, which is called the Little Hebe. Little Hebe. Uh uh So there's Ubi Hebe and Little Hebe. Yubi-hebi and little Yubi-hebi. Hebe. Okay. That's right. Now, to get to this crater, it takes about an hour drive to get there from Furnace Creek. And it is on the way to the racetrack, which we will be talking about yeah, in like, a bit. Yeah, like we said, it takes a long time to drive to anything. Mm-hmm. So this this doesn't – on the map doesn't look that far from Furnace Creek. But like you said, it's an hour. That's right. And uh, when we were up there walking around it, you know what it reminded me of? It looked a lot like the top of Haleakala. It did. National yes, Park. Kind I of had agree. the same feel. Mm-hmm. It it definitely did, and some of the same colors. And our photos look a little bit similar. One very pretty drive that you could do a drive. It's actually a drive and a viewpoint combined. Is Artist Drive, which is nine miles, and it's a one way road that takes you to a viewpoint called Artist Palette after five miles. And I was so surprised about all the colors in the rocks there. Yeah, without any vegetation, then you see you're seeing just the the ground, the minerals of the ground, and and that that causes a lot of the the different colors and the oxidation of the metals that are that are in the uh, minerals in the in the ground. So with, without vegetation covering it up, it's it's pretty cool to see these areas. And there's they have colors that you wouldn't expect in nature, like purples and blues and and green. That's right. And it reminded me of Sherbert. It looks like a whole bunch of colors of Sherbert plop down on these hills. 
Um, so there is a parking lot at Artist Palette, and you can get out and you can hike a bit through these small hills and through these colors. And it's uh, it's very pretty. The, now, the best time, if you want to see the colors pop, would be after it rains, which is almost never in Death Valley, or when the, when the lighting's not directly overhead, like at uh, sunrise or sunset. We found this out in other areas like this, like Badlands National Parks, where it's it's great to be there in the middle of the day, but the sun directly overhead kind of washes out the color. So mm-hmm. like you said, sunrise, sunset, best times to get good photographs. But yeah, it's a beautiful drive. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So moving on, let's uh, let's talk about some of our favorite hikes. Okay. Okay. Mosaic Canyon. I, that was one of the first hikes we ever did in the park. I think it was the very first. Yeah, and they call it Mosaic because the the rocks there, and the, and you'll find this in other areas of the park too. It's a aggregate of a bunch of small rocks like pebbles but they've been all they've been compressed and hardened over time and so it looks like as as the erosion has cut through them and it looks like mosaic it does it's really beautiful and also as you get into it it has some narrow sections and along these narrow sections that you're walking through the the rock is marbled and it's absolutely beautiful So this canyon is four miles round trip, but when you get to about 1.3 miles, you hit this boulder jam, and a lot of people think that's the end, and they turn around and go back, but... Um, if you want to continue on, which you absolutely should, you can crawl between the boulders on the left side. I think it took us a little while to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't want to get stopped so quickly. Then another, what, about a quarter of a mile. Then we got to a 20-foot dry fall. That's right. On that particular one, if you backtrack a bit and look to the western wall, you can see a faint footpath up, and it kind of takes you up and over this hill and back down into the canyon. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. So Some of these narrow canyons, you can, if you look long enough, you can find some other ways that people have figured out to, to go mm-hmm. around these. Uh, eventually, though, sometimes you get, you get to these dry falls that you just can't get out. Right, and this one has, um, it's sort of a this little amphitheater with these, uh, very tall walls surrounding this dry fall. And there's there's clearly no way up and around it, unless maybe you had ropes or you were. Um... And we don't carry ropes. <laughs> no. So the, the, like I said, the total, the total hike is about four miles. And this was nothing difficult to do. So I think we would encourage everybody to continue on to the end. One of my favorite hikes, maybe maybe my favorite hike in the park is that Gower Gulch. And then it goes, if you do it the right way, then it goes, you can make a loop out of it, do the Golden Canyon loop. And what's interesting about this is you can drive right to it. There's a nice parking lot. You get on the trail, but you get back, you know, halfway from the parking lot. 
you feel like you are in the middle of nowhere. It looks like you're on the moon. It does. I love this hike. And a ranger recommended it to us. And he told us, which I think was great advice, to hike it counterclockwise. So when you get to the parking area for Golden Canyon, everyone heads up Golden Canyon. That's that's the attraction right there. But if you start off in the other direction towards Gower Gulch and do it that way counterclockwise, we were by ourselves for a huge chunk of the time. And it's absolutely beautiful. Now, that hike, that loop is also about four miles if you just do those two things. But you can make it, you can make a bigger loop if you go up to Zabriskie Point. That uh, changes it to about a six mile loop. Yeah, I wish we had done that. We, I don't think we had enough water with us when we did that hike, or we would have added that Zabriskie point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that's the next time we go and we do that, we have to be prepared and, and go all the way to Zabriskie point, which then you hike. So you're hiking through all of this wilderness area up to a spot where people have just driven to. <laughs> also on the that network of trails is the Red Cathedral. Um, that is a spur trail that's about a half of a mile out and then a half mile back. And Red Cathedral is also beautiful and worth seeing. So, you know, you could spend a half a day doing that whole hike. And it is, I don't want to say spectacular because this is our new year and we're trying to it's find new words. It's jaw-dropping. It's phenomenal. Yeah, take plenty of water, though. Mm-hmm. Even even in January, February, take a lot of water. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Now, we've talked about mesquite flat sand dunes before, and that is our favorite thing to do at sunset. And I'm kind of surprised to hear myself say that because usually I hate hiking up sand dunes, <laughs> and we've had some bad experiences. But they just keep they, – they seem to get easier the more we hike up them. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No. But when you do this at sunset, the temperature is dropping. The sand is – it's still warm, but it's not hot. And we always put a beer in our backpack, a can of beer and some snacks. And we go up there and we lay on the sand, have our beer, have our little happy hour and watch the sunset. And of course, you know, when we're there in January and February, the sun is setting early. So you can still then, you know, afterwards go have dinner and or whatever your plans are. We should mention, too, that the Mesquite Flat Sand Dunes, there is no marked trail, obviously. They're just dunes that you walk out on. And they're about 100 feet high. And they kind of, even though they only cover, what, 1% of the park, you can hike for a long, long time, time-wise, because it's slow going in the sand. So you, you can hike out there for as much as you want. That's right. And the other thing, too, is you can distance yourself from other people. True. And gosh, when we were there, yeah, there were some cars in the parking lot, but we headed in a direction where there were no people and we felt like we had the place to ourselves. Right. Now, one thing that we haven't done, but I know it's on a lot of people's list to do, so I thought I would mention it. It's called Darwin Falls. And this, as the park website, calls it a miracle in the desert. And it's a spring-fed waterfall that flows year-round in a narrow gorge. Now, this is located west of Panamint Springs. Um, which is why we haven't been to it because Panamint Springs is on the very west side of the park. We haven't spent a lot of time over there. But if you happen to be coming in that way or you're over there, I would definitely check out Darwin Falls because the photos I've seen look beautiful. Yeah, we'll have to do that sometime. So it's good that we have a few things left on the list that we just haven't done because 
I would go back and do a lot of the things we've already done oh, over, over again. in a heartbeat. And one of the things I loved doing was renting a Jeep. That's right. And now everything we've talked about so far, you can get to in a regular car. But if you want to explore some of the many, many backcountry roads in the park, you'll need um, either a Jeep or a four-wheel drive vehicle with high clearance. And so we had a few places on our list we wanted to see. So we thought renting a Jeep would be a good idea. Richard Farabee rents Jeeps there in Death Valley. And one of the best reasons to rent a Jeep when you're in uh, Death Valley is he also has a tow truck. (laughs) 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 And so for people who go out into these difficult roads and they get a hole in their oil pan because rocks are kicking up, He's the one that's probably going to come tow you out, and that's pretty expensive. However, if you're in one of his Jeeps and something happens and he has to come rescue you, it doesn't cost anything. That's right. Yeah, he was telling us stories about uh, people and and cars that he'd rescued. And at the time, this was in 2012, he charged $200 an hour. And to get out to some of those remote places there and back would take him, you know, six hours. So there's $1,200. And as you pointed out, he only takes you to his his place there in Death Valley. If you have a rental car or I guess any car you have to be repaired, then you have to get it to someplace else. Yeah, he, he's right there by uh, Furnace Creek. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. now, now you... Your car is back sitting at Furnace Creek. Right. And it's, it's and disabled. It, and, and it can't go anywhere. <laughs> it was well worth uh, renting a Jeep from him. And, and his Jeeps are outfitted to handle the, the rough roads. And Yeah. <clears throat> so we decided to rent one for two days because we had, we had several things on our list. We knew we would need more than one day. So the first day, the first morning, we picked it up. And I have to say, too, that Richard was really good about giving us suggestions about some other things to do and some maps. And I don't know, did we mention that there's no cell service in the park? And so... Yeah. One thing he did, which I thought this was odd as he was doing it, but then it made total sense. He said, well, where are you guys going to go? And we didn't really know exactly what our itinerary was. And he actually pulled a form out Mm -hmm. and he he had the form and a pen and he was starting to write down our agenda. And and so he wasn't he wasn't just being conversational. He wanted our itinerary, where we were going, how long we were going to be there, because if he had to go look for us, (laughs) he he wanted the stuff written down. And I think he does that for everyone. He runs a Jeep. So that's uh, right, which was some kind of peace of mind for us, because if we got stuck somewhere, we would know that on the on the afternoon that we were supposed to return the Jeep, if we didn't, that Richard would come looking for us. Right. So on our first day, we did the beautiful Titus Canyon. I loved that. Yeah, you actually have to drive north through the park and then out of the park a little bit, just a little bit, and then get on this uh, back road to come back into the park. But it was it was a beautiful drive. And you don't have to have a Jeep. Like when the conditions are perfect, you could probably go out and do this drive in a, in a passenger vehicle. But – you don't know that the conditions are going to be perfect until you get way back out there. So suggest either a Jeep or you really need to know what you're doing with a four-wheel drive mm-hmm. vehicle. The park says you must have a high-clearance vehicle. Um, that is their suggestion. Now, Titus Canyon, like Matt said, 
you go out of the park and then you get on this Titus Canyon Road, which is an incredibly scenic one-way road that runs for 27 miles and it runs east to west. I remember the first stop we made on that was when we hit the Red Pass you, you climb up, 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 and we stopped and got out and looked around. That was beautiful. Yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful area. Mm-hmm. And then you descend, and, and eventually, when you get to the end of this one-way road, the last mile and a half of the canyon is the most narrow, and the walls squeeze down to less than 20 feet apart in some places. And so you're twisting and turning on this through this kind of like a slot canyon, and it was very cool. Yeah, you have to be careful in there because hikers – could be coming in the opposite direction. That's right. So our suggestion is if you don't have plans to rent a Jeep and you don't have a car that you feel comfortable driving that road, but you want to see these narrows of Titus Canyon, what you can do is you you can drive to the west side where cars are exiting and there's a parking lot there. So you can get out and you can just walk in the mile and a half of this very cool, narrow part. You just have to watch out for cars coming towards you, obviously, but they're going very slowly. Right. And we've done that. It's definitely worth doing to see it. The other thing, too, we should mention is from that same parking lot, you can hike north and there is another slot canyon you can do that we did. And it's called Fall Canyon. And, mm-hmm. and that's, a, that's a great little hike. Yeah, so that afternoon we did another canyon that Richard had recommended called Echo Canyon, and that was very cool, too. That was near Furnace Creek, and that pretty much filled our day in, until it was time to go to um, to Mesquite Flat for sunset. Yeah, that was a good day. Yeah, you know what's funny about that? No. I remember it, that was back in the day when everyone wore a Fitbit, you know, because we were <laughs> obsessed with, with walking 10,000 steps a right. day. At the end of that day, I looked at my Fitbit and it was like congratulating me. <laughs> and basically, I'd sat in that Jeep the entire day, right? We didn't, we hardly got out. It said I had walked like 15 or 20,000 steps. And I think it was because that Jeep was so bumpy. You know, we were rattled up and down so much that my arm must have been moving and it thought that I had been doing all those steps. Well, that's a good way to get in shape for the new year. Let's go around a Jeep. That's right. Your, I kind of liked it. I'm not going to lie. Steps in. <laughs> yeah. So we went to Mesquite Flats that night and, and sat and watched the sunset. But the the main thing that we wanted to do that we felt like we needed a Jeep, the next day we went to the racetrack. Because we wanted to see the mysterious moving rocks. That's right. And now this place had been on our bucket list ever since we'd read about it years before. So just to explain, so the racetrack is a playa, which is a dry lake bed. And it's about three miles long and two miles wide. Now, the lake has evaporated and it left behind this kind of beige colored mud that's at least a thousand feet thick. And unless it rains, this mud is completely dry. It's dry enough that you can walk on it. And I don't know if they've named it the racetrack because it's literally big enough that you could race cars on it or because of the moving rocks. Yeah, that's a good And it it kind of looks like the rocks are racing each other across the playa. Yeah, so what it is is 
there there are rocks in various sizes. Some are up to 700 pounds. And somehow they have glided over the surface of this lake bed and they have left long trails in the dirt behind them, embedded in the dirt, almost as if like an invisible hand had pushed them across. It almost looks like a cartoon drawing. Yeah. That you would see like like a Roadrunner cartoon where a rock, you know, skids across the lake bed and leaves this path. But it, it is there for real. What's ironic about all of this is the rocks are perfectly still and they're they're stuck in the mud and you cannot figure out how they could have possibly moved across this flat lake bed. That's right. It, it was a mystery back then in 2012. Um, so we got up really early that morning. I think we left by like 6.30 or 7 because we were hoping to be the first people there. And it takes a long time to get there. Uh, you drive on a, a paved road. You drive north until you get to the turnoff for Ubihibi Crater. And then after that, it's 27 miles on a rough gravel road that has very sharp rocks. And I thought, well, okay, so it's an hour to Ubihibi Crater Mm -hmm. and another 27 miles to the racetrack. So that'll be, what, maybe half an hour, 45 minutes more from the crater. It took two more hours. That's right. That 27 miles. Mm-hmm. It's, and, a, it's a three-hour journey out and, to get and, out there. And we were driving as really as fast as you want to go. Well, the road, it kept – is that called washboarding? Right. Is that it, what that – it was, it was washboarded out. And uh-huh. they do grade it every now and then, but I, I think it washboards pretty quick. And it just shakes you. Oh, my gosh. Uh-oh. It does. And so, you, you you know, we're going literally 10 to 15 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. And it's also very, very narrow. And in many in places, spots, yeah. it's only the width of one car. Right. We, we ran into mm-hmm. another car um, on one of those narrow stretches, and, and we had to uh, – Discuss mm-hmm. which one of us was going to back up to to a, <laughs> a wide area so that we could pass. That's right. But the, the rocks along this gravel road are very sharp. And the biggest problem people have are flat tires out here. So just FYI. Another reason to <laughs> rent somebody mm-hmm. else's Jeep. That's right. Now, about 21 miles into this 27-mile drive, we stopped at a place called Tea Kettle Junction, which basically is this wooden sign where people have hung tea kettles over many, many decades. And there are messages on the tea kettles, and people also put letters inside the tea kettles. So that was kind of fun to see. It's a good place to take a photo because uh-huh. it's, an, it's an oddity in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Some people don't like it because they, they feel like it's littering, but it's it, it doesn't cover a huge area. I mean, it's a few tea kettles hanging on a sign. So it's actually kind of fun. That's right. We'll put a picture of it up on our website. Now, the racetrack playa has two parking areas. And the first one you come to is called the grandstand. And the grandstand is sort of this large outcropping of rocks that sits out on the playa. And you can park here and you can walk out to them. But there are no moving rocks in this particular spot. Yeah, probably not. There could there there might be one or two, but that's that's not where most of the moving rocks are. It's the next parking area. Um, So we continued on and parked and we walked out. Gosh, we must have walked, what, about a mile to get to the to where we saw the moving rocks. Yeah. And you think you're not going to see any because it kind of feels like, well, I can see all the way across the playa and I'd see the rocks if they were there. But it's it's deceptive. The distance is deceptive. And so if you go there, if it's dry, 
if it's wet, do not walk on the mud. But if it's dry, then we encourage you to to, to walk all the way across the mm-hmm. playa. And then here and there, you're going to see some moving rocks. And what, what was interesting, too, is they're, they're moving in different directions. Right. They're not all moving the same way. And so that was cool. And the rocks are different sizes. Some are tiny. Some are huge. Uh, what was a little disturbing is we would see these trails embedded into this into the dry dirt, and then the rock would not be at the end. I think some people were taking the rocks because they thought maybe the rocks were magic, or I, yeah, who knows, who I knows know. what it's, they were thinking. It's sad they, that they people were thinking, would, but would the, steal those. You know, spoiler alert, the rocks themselves, there's nothing special mm-hmm. about the rock. <laughs> you know, aliens didn't place them there, and the aliens didn't drag them across the, the playa. So if you go, leave the rocks where they're they're at. Exactly. Now, when we were there in 2012, the mystery of the moving rocks hadn't been figured out yet. And and there were all kinds of possible explanations. One was high winds that moved the rocks. Some people thought maybe there were dirt devils or dust devils. And also, of course, the ever popular theory of aliens moved the rocks. The aliens aliens moved them. (laughs) I don't think it was the aliens. No, as a matter of fact, it was found out in 2013 that aliens had not moved the rocks. And I have to say, after reading the findings, it's pretty ingenious. Well, I guess it's not ingenious how the rocks moved, but it makes total sense now when you hear the explanation. But I would have never guessed it. No, I wouldn't have either. And so what happened was researchers came in 2011 in the winter, and of course they had permission from the NPS, and they fitted 15 rocks with custom-built motion-activated GPS units. Now, the Park Service wouldn't let them use the native rocks that were there, so they had to bring in their own similar rocks from an outside source. And they thought at the time they planted these rocks that they were going to wait for five to ten years to see any kind of results or any kind of movement, but it only took two years. It only took two years. That's right. Do you want to explain what they found? Well, what they found was that in order for the rocks to move, it— there, you have to have this special combination of conditions that, that don't happen very often. Obviously, these rocks, the, the trails that are behind the rocks, they can only form when the lake is wet, right? So they're forming in the mud. So first what has to happen is they have to have enough rain so that the lake fills up, at least partially, with water. And then during cold winter nights, the water freezes, okay? And so then once it freezes the next day, if the sun comes out, the sun will start to heat up the water and it will create like these window panes of ice on the lake. They're not like icebergs. They're like like big sheets of ice. And and by big sheets, they, they could be 100 feet long, but because the water's starting to melt. They're floating now on this this very, very shallow lake. And if you have that condition, which that condition doesn't happen very often, and then you get some kind of wind, the wind will push these window panes of ice. And because they're so heavy, anything in their way, they'll move along and drag across the mud. And so 
that that makes perfect sense when mm-hmm. you when you think about it. That's right. And then the water disappears, the ice disappears, and and the mud hardens into dirt, and you are left with the rocks and their trails that they've made. So it, it is very cool, and it's also encouraging that. This will keep happening. As you said, it's a rare combination of events, but it will happen again in the future. The rocks will continue to move. So if that's the explanation, why do some rocks move one direction and then other rocks move in the opposite direction? (laughs) I don't know. Some might be aliens and then others are (laughs) window panes of ice. That's right. As you mentioned, Matt, because any imprint on this mud will last for decades, all visitors are asked to refrain from walking on the playa when it's muddy. And of course... Any driving on the playa is prohibited, but unfortunately, that didn't stop someone from vandalizing the place in September of 2016. Somebody drove across the playa and did donuts and loops and all kinds of crazy things while it was muddy, and they left tire tracks all over the place. Yeah, that's not good. Because they, like you said, those won't go away for decades, essentially our lifetime. Yeah. They'll, they'll be there. So that that's that's not cool. It was sickening. However, on a bright note, a year and a half later, in March of 2018, NPS staff and volunteers headed out there and they used garden tools and 750 gallons of water in an attempt to erase the, this 512 feet of tire tracks. They had been very visible, but this effort kind of eliminated these depressions, and it brought back, you know how the dirt makes those um, polygon shapes on the playa? Yeah, and some of them are (laughs) heart-shaped. Unfortunately, not on this lake bed, but the dirt makes these very cool geometric patterns. And so when this volunteer group was done, um, you could see, I guess, these geometric patterns beginning to reform. So I think they did a lot of great work in erasing this uh, this idiot's tire tracks and uh, and hopefully that won't be repeated. I did hear that the that the park is thinking about installing some kind of a barrier along that edge of the road so no one can drive out there. Yeah. So I, I hope that they're able to do that. So we spent about two hours hiking. And uh, looking at all the moving rocks, it was kind of uh, mesmerizing. We kept looking for them, and, and every time we would find one, we wanted to find another. Uh, but after that, we, we saw a lot of uh, rooster tails of dust coming our way. So we could tell a lot of other visitors were coming down the road towards us. And so uh, we, f- we figured it was time to get out of there. And so we uh, headed back to Ubi Crater and then back to our hotel. It's good to combine those two. If you're planning to go out to the racetrack, you might as well wait and see. You'll be going right by UBHB, uh, so you might as well combine those. But it was a great day, and it was uh, it was a bucket list item checked off. Yeah, I'd like to do it again, though. Yeah, I would too. I would. I would like to see how different it looks now, these years later. Now, there's also camping in the park. We've camped there once. Mm-hmm. Uh, they the park service lists uh, nine campgrounds. Now, the only one that takes reservations, and it takes reservations from uh, middle of October to the middle of April, is Furnace Creek. And we stayed there on our trip when we rented a teardrop trailer in, in Las Vegas and, and drove through the southwest. And it was a great location. It was, it was fairly close to the visitor center and, and within walking distance to the ranch. But there are three other privately owned campgrounds in the park. 
Uh, and then there's also some backcountry dispersed camping along the dirt roads. But you, you have to be at least a mile away from a paved road to do that dispersed camping. And the Death Valley National Park website has all the details and all the rules on dispersed camping and where you can and can't camp. But um, back to that Furnace Creek campground for a second. One of the benefits that you found out was the ability to take a shower at at the ranch, at the pool there. Yeah, I don't know if they still do this, but when we were there, you can buy a day pass to the little resort that gets you into the pool area. And if you're camping and have been away from uh, civilization for a while, one of the things that you can do is go to the pool and in the pool house they have showers. And so it's a great place to take showers. It's cheap one-day membership and so that's what we did while we were camping there. We just walked on over. I think it was Valentine's Day. I think that's what I got you. <laughs> it that was year. my gift, my $5 shower. <laughs> got you a shower. <laughs> that it was kind the, of a gift for well, both of us. No, it was a combo gift with the portable toilet. <laughs> yeah, so it that's was true. it was bathing that and was personal it. grooming or something like that you said. It was a theme. It was that a theme was gift. That was a big Valentine's Day for you. <laughs> Yeah, so we need to get ourselves back to Death Valley. There's another thing I want to do that I don't know that you you know about this, Matt. I found it when I was doing some of my research, but there's another slot canyon that I'd like to do called Side Winder Canyon. You're going to love this. I took this off the NPS website. I'll just read this so you can get uh, get a feel for it. It says, the first drainage that you come to is blocked by a large pile of boulders. Crawl into a crack on the lower left where you'll climb up and over a different boulder not yet visible in the picture on the right. Once over the boulder, you will squeeze through a short, tight space one and a half feet wide where it might be necessary for you to remove your pack. Once through the tight space, you will be inside slot number one, where the short yet deep canyon becomes so dark that you'll need a headlamp or a flashlight. Okay, great. <laughs> it's on the list. I'm, I'm ready. One and a half feet wide. I, I don't know how. How narrow that actually is. I'll have to, maybe we'll have to set something up at home to practice. We'll have to skip the pizza at the saloon the night before. Uh, I believe there's also might be some belly crawling on that one, but we'll have to look into that further. (laughs) Yeah, you have, you probably have to crawl on your belly to get through that tight space, Mm -hmm. wouldn't you? There are a lot of fun slot canyons in Death Valley, if that's your thing. You know, the thing that's very cool about Death Valley is that It has something for everyone, right? It has the luxury vacation. That's the pool. Uh (laughs) You can stay at the inn. And play golf. You can play golf. You can hang out at the pool. It also has backcountry experiences. Uh, You've got dispersed camping along remote dirt roads, and no one will ever see you there. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's great places to hike, and if you want to drink a beer, they have a few restaurants in, in the large park to do that. Uh, They also have places if you just want to drive to viewpoints. There are plenty of those, as we mentioned, or if you want to hike in slot canyons and sand dunes. And so it's got a huge, huge variety of things to do. And I would definitely put Death Valley National Park on your list of places to visit. Yep. You know what we get to do this week, Karen? What do we get to do? You get to ask me what's in the mailbag. <laughs> <laughs> Move over. 
<laughs> You're going to have to move off the mail desk, I'm not sister. sure you'll do it correctly. <laughs> okay, well, okay. try me. Okay, Matt, what's in the mailbag today? Well, Karen, thank you for asking. <laughs> you want to be me. <laughs> no, no, I don't. We got a question this week from Brent from Nebraska about snake bites. Okay. And his question was, he's he's planning a trip to Big Bend National Park soon, and he's not a big fan of snake bites or rattlesnakes or getting bitten by. So he his question was, when we did our gear review and talked about what we carried in our packs, we didn't mention snake bite kits. Since we've had run-ins with snakes, why don't we carry a snake bite kit? And that's a very good question. And the reason we're answering that in today's episode is because I had actually chosen a different question for today. However, when I was doing some of the research for Death Valley and I was uh, reading about mesquite flat sand dunes, which we talked about laying on the dunes during sunset, the National Park Service website did say, and if you go out to the mesquite flat sand dunes at night to stargaze, watch out for rattlesnakes who have come up onto the warm dunes. So when we're we're watching the sunset on the dunes and you're laying on the sand dunes, you, are you going to be worried now that a snake will crawl up your hiking <laughs> pants, Karen? No, because it didn't say sunset. It <clears throat> said like the middle of the night. Oh, so anyway, the snakes know mm-hmm. that it's sunset. That's and, right. Okay. So we didn't mention that there are rattlesnakes in Death Valley, but there are. So I think this is a timely question. So I'm, I will stop talking now and let you answer your mailbag <laughs> question. <laughs> well, you can jump in if you want. You emailed Brent back and you had – a very good answer. So I will let you continue on. Well, first of all, we should say that we're not medical experts. <laughs> <laughs> that needs to be because said. Because <laughs> sometimes it's confusing <laughs> when you listen to us talk. You might think, wow, mm. they're medical experts. That's but true. we're not. <laughs> we're just two idiots with microphones. <laughs> anyway, the reason we don't, I don't carry a snake bite kit is from the research that I have done, and the snake bite kit manufacturer is going to really love this answer, is a lot of the research I've read says snake bite kits don't do any good. A matter of fact, they can actually make a, a bad situation worse by increasing the bleeding or causing an infection. And, and really, the intent of a snake bite kit is to draw the venom out. And, and really, unless you're getting to that bite very, very quickly – it's not going to prevent the venom entering your bloodstream. So I, I don't think snake bite kits are terribly effective. So we don't carry them. I, I think the best course of action is just to avoid getting bit. <laughs> now, we will share some things that rangers have told us. First of all, one ranger told us that most snake bites that happen in the park occur from the elbow down. And that was their way of saying that – what was happening, visitors try to pick them up and then they get bit. Uh, another ranger told us that when you're hiking, the snakes can tell by the vibration you make that you're too big to eat. And so if if they do strike you, especially if it's an adult snake, they're, they're probably not going to use their venom on you. They're just trying to protect their territory. Interesting fact, juvenile snakes, 
They haven't learned yet how and when to use their venom, and and they can be more dangerous because they haven't learned yet that they don't have to use their venom in every situation. And so sometimes the, the little ones are more dangerous. But do they have as much venom as the big ones? Well, I don't know, Karen. That's a good question. <laughs> I wasn't prepared for, for that question, so we're, uh, we're going to skip right over that. <laughs> Now, a couple of other things rangers have told us, and and this is actually pretty brilliant advice. They said you should carry a Sharpie with you, and if you get bitten by a snake, circle the area with the Sharpie, write down the exact time you were bit, probably wouldn't be bad idea to put rattlesnake next to it, (laughs) maybe the name of a person and a phone number to call. This way, and this isn't a joke, when you pass out, and they find you, it won't take them long to figure out what what the problem is. That's so frightening. Yeah. So um, I mean, it's good advice, but it's scary. And for years, we carried Sharpies, and, and we've stopped. So mm-hmm. I'm going to put those uh, Sharpies back in my pack. Another little bit of a scary thing that we learned is, so in Guadalupe Mountains, did we say this on another podcast? I don't remember. Now Now we like – I can't even remember what we've said on podcast. <laughs> yes, about how but, you step on I the rattlesnake. Mm-hmm. And we talked to the ranger afterwards and I asked him like what, what would happen uh, if I got bit. His advice was you got to stay where you're at. Don't try to walk or run because that will just make the venom you know, go into your circulation even faster. Send somebody for help. And I said, but you guys could administer the anti-venom. He says, well, no, actually, we can't. We're not allowed to. There has to be a medical professional do that, and they have to call them in from El Paso. So the the, the reason for saying all of this is don't get bit. Because <laughs> you're screwed if yeah, you get bit. You're, you're, you're pretty screwed. Well, you and, bit. you know, what if you're hiking by yourself and you get bit? Then you're going to have to hike your ass down to, to get help, right? You can't just sit there with your Sharpie and draw pictures get, on your leg. Get your Sharpie out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It's not funny. But but all of that said, mm-hmm. we have been around rattlesnakes enough to, to know that they don't want to bite you. I mean, that's the whole purpose of a rattle. They're trying to tell you, go away, right? Mm-hmm. As long as you don't step on one, which, uh, and I will say, you know, don't go off the trail into the scrub and the uh, the, the sage because you're not going to see it. Those those things blend into the their surroundings. So don't go off trail. Maybe wear some high-topped hiking boots, some thick hiking boots and long pants. I don't know if the long pants would help, but the hiking boots certainly would. Yeah, uh, a little bit. I mean, that's the whole idea behind cowboy boots. I mean, one of the reasons is they they go up so high is to prevent snake bites. You don't hike in cowboy boots. Uh, there are such things as, as snake gaiters. Uh, a lot of people have snow gaiters. You could wear those. I, I don't think those would protect because I think fangs just go right through those snow gaiters. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, don't get yeah. bit. And I will add one more thing, Brent, is when we did the two-year journey to all the national parks and we hiked everywhere, we never saw a rattlesnake one time. Now, we've seen some, you know, in subsequent visits, but I think you'll be fine, and I hope you have a wonderful time in Big Bend. Yeah. Good question, Brent. Brent. 
While we were recording this episode, our team of fact checkers was busy verifying all the information we presented. And I'm pleased to tell you, Matt, that they confirmed my research about the Badwater Basin salt flats covering 200 square miles. I did not have a decimal point in the wrong place. Who are these fact checkers that, that you're talking about? <laughs> okay. I will I will publicly admit you are right and I was wrong. Oh, wow. Thank you. We even have that in a recording. Yeah. <laughs> if you enjoy the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, we think you'll enjoy our Dear Bob and Sue books as well. There are three of them in the series, and you can buy the paperback, the Kindle version, or the audiobook on Amazon.com. And you can also find more information about us by heading over to one of our four websites, www.dearbobandsue.com. Now, if you have a question for our mailbag segment or possibly a suggestion for a future episode, send us an email to mattandkarensmith at gmail.com, or you can reach out to us on social media. Go to facebook.com slash dearbobandess, or you can also find us on Instagram at mattandkarensmith. For each of our episodes, we create show notes, and those have links at the bottom that will give you more information about what we discussed. There's also a link where you can view our million photos of Death Valley. <laughs> Go to www.thedearbobandsuepodcast.com. Click on the Episodes tab in the menu bar and then click on the title for Episode 26. Sounds like a long process, yes, but I think it will be worth it. <laughs> yep. Yep, it will. <laughs> our show is produced by our very talented team at Puddle Creative in Portland, Oregon. Our artwork is by the designers at Expert Subjects, and our theme music is by Will West. The next time we go to Death Valley, Matt, let's splurge and stay at the inn and see what we've been missing. You just want to drive one of those golf carts and swim in the cement pond with Ellie Mae and Jethro, <laughs> don't you? That's exactly right in Granny. <laughs> uh-uh. No, we're not doing that. 